Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I am somewhat enamored with the tiny house movement. In case you haven't heard of the tiny house movement, this is a growing movement of people who are opting to live in tiny houses, usually defined as being under 400 square feet. Here's one that is 89 square feet. Here's another one. This one is 144 square feet. Small houses are another thing. People in this movement often talk about small houses as being between 400 and 1,000 square feet. That's small, so tiny is really tiny. Wikipedia says that in the United States, the average size of new single-family homes grew from almost 1,800 square feet in 1978 to over 2,600 square feet in 2013. In that same time, the size of the average American family decreased. Now that information looks at a fairly recent period of time, going back only to 1978, but the house Katie and I lived in in Sacramento was older, built in 1928, and it was under 1,100 square feet. And that size was very typical for single-family homes of the 1920s and 30s, which is apparent if you drive around neighborhoods that were built in those decades. Have you looked at the housing being built in the cannery? There is nothing there smaller than 1,400 square feet, and those are attached units. And most of the homes are much bigger, especially the single-family homes. People in the tiny house movement talk about the values behind their choice to go small. It's better for the environment, as smaller houses have a smaller environmental impact. It's better for a person's financial life, not only because the housing itself is very economical, but also because you just can't fit a lot of stuff in those houses. So there are all kinds of other things you're not spending as much money on. And people talk about tiny houses also together with living simply in ways that reduce stress. I am enamored with the tiny house movement, but I have not signed on. One thing I have noticed is that it seems that most, not all, but most of the people living in tiny houses and extolling their virtues live alone. This makes sense to me. I haven't signed on for living in a tiny house any more than I have signed on for selling all I have and giving the proceeds to the poor in order to completely follow Jesus. Our scripture passage for this morning begins when a man runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and asks him a question. Some people call this the story of the rich young ruler, but we are hearing from Mark's gospel today, and Mark simply says, a man. As we follow the story, bits of information emerge about this man. We learn that this man has kept all the commandments since his youth. Let's pause and take note of that. In my mind, that is no small thing. In the story, Jesus lists five of the Ten Commandments. 
He also throws in one we've never heard before, you shall not defraud. But I think it's safe to assume that both Jesus and the man would have all the commandments in mind. All of the commandments that would have been taught to anyone growing up in the Jewish community that both Jesus and this other man were part of. Faithfully keeping all the commandments since childhood is no small thing, I don't think. So I am rather impressed with this man. And then as we continue along in the story, we also find out that this man has many possessions. It seems to me that this man really has his act together. He is very faithful. He is apparently well off, probably enjoys a good deal of comfort and security. This man has his life in order. So why then did he turn to Jesus? Why would someone who already has it all together turn to Jesus? I don't know why he turns to Jesus when he already has so much figured out, but I do think it's an excellent model for growing in faith. What if we made it a practice to turn to God regularly and ask, what's next? I think it's an excellent model for growing in faith. All right, God, here's what I've done so far. I've been keeping these commandments, but I feel like there's something more. What's next? That kind of thinking actually is part of what was behind the design of the commitment cards we used as part of our focus on stewardship earlier this month. We tried to talk about the big holistic picture of stewardship, a picture that encompasses the whole picture of our lives. So when asking you to think about your commitments, we offered a tool that invited you to think about what kinds of commitments might help you grow or deepen in faith. We offered a tool that invited you to think about what kinds of commitments might help you nurture relationships that are loving and just. We offered a tool that invited you to think about what kinds of commitments will help you give of yourself in service. And this was actually an announcement I meant to make earlier, and I'm sorry I forgot it because it's important to me. Um, One thing we did during that time was to lift up the gifts of time that you all give on an ongoing basis as part of the life of this church. And there is still a bulletin board in the fellowship hall. Um, If you go in, it'll be to your right. And I hope you'll pause and take a look because it It just makes my heart overflow with gratitude to see this abundance of how people pour out their time and energy on behalf of this church. And then for those of you who um, are newer or are looking for a different niche, it also might be that thing that helps you see, oh, there's that place where I might fit. So I hope you'll take a look. I had no intention of talking about stewardship per se today. I am content to be done with our fall stewardship emphasis. I chose today's scripture because I continually wrestle between the part of myself that wants to feel secure and comfortable and the part of myself that earnestly wants to be a faithful follower of Jesus, knowing that following Jesus usually involves some discomfort or risk, even sacrifice. 
this scripture speaks to my internal wrestling. Of course, you and I don't have the luxury or the challenge of kneeling in the physical bodily presence of Jesus and looking at him and asking, what's next for me, Jesus? What shall I do to be part of God's work and God's vision? The man in our gospel reading asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus continually talks about eternal life in the same contexts and ways that he talks about the kingdom of God, that kingdom which he taught us to pray for on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is talking about God's vision and God's work in this world. The man in our gospel reading asks how to be a part of that. And so do we. What's next for me, Jesus? What shall I do to be a part of God's work and vision? This man wants something. For all that he's got going for him, he wants something more. I wonder if this biblical passage is for those of us who want something more. When he answers the man's question, Jesus tells the man he lacks one thing. Only one? I'm sure I lack much more than that. But then this one thing is a doozy. You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own. What do we lack? Where is the gap in our faithful living? What stands as a barrier to following Jesus for us? If we want to grow in faith, if we want something more, and this scripture speaks to that longing in us, then what? How do we know what's next? We don't have Jesus here in the flesh, but we do have the Gospels and the other wisdom in Scripture and the wealth of the voices in the Christian tradition to guide us. There is no shortage of resources available to help us as we do our best to listen for God's guidance. I always read a bunch of commentaries in preparing for a sermon. With any biblical passage, you will usually find many diverse perspectives, a, a wide range of interpretations. But I discovered a striking unity about two points related to today's scripture. The first point of unity in the commentaries is this. The story is not only about money. The man in the story is wealthy, and his material possessions are an issue. But the passage is not only about money or possessions. It is about following Jesus and what frees us to follow Jesus or what gets in the way of following Jesus. The second point of unity in the commentaries is this. It is about money. The questions of what it takes to follow Jesus, of what's next for us, of how God might call and invite and challenge us, these questions could have all kinds of answers. But we cannot call ourselves Christian and fail to deal with our material lives. We cannot imagine we are faithful if we willfully turn away 
from considering the issues of money and possessions. Christians must look at what it means to live faithfully in a world shaped by materialism and unjust economic structures. And as we see in today's gospel reading, this is a particular challenge for those of us who are relatively well off. The tiny house movement is primarily made up of environmentalists. I wish it were a Christian movement. It's not just the tiny house movement. It is much of what I see and read about living simply for the purpose of changing our impact on the earth and changing the way we relate to an unfettered and immoral capitalism. It looks to me like environmentalists are leading the way in looking at how we ought to live life faithfully in a material world. I wish it were Christians who were leading the way. This is hard stuff, difficult enough that the man in the scripture was shocked, it says, by Jesus' response. Difficult enough that the man went away grieving. The disciples really get how difficult it is. I said earlier that it seems to me that this man really has his act together. He's very faithful. He has a life of comfort and security. And Jesus' disciples are with me on this one. They think this man has his act together. Or maybe they think all wealthy people have their acts together. That would have been a common way of thinking at that point in history, to believe that material wealth was a sign of God's favor, which is why it was so shocking to the disciples as Jesus is debriefing them after the conversation with the wealthy man. And Jesus tells the disciples that it will be very, very difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. When they hear that, the disciples ask, then who can be saved? I think this is a totally different reaction from the reaction we would have. If we hear Jesus say that it's difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God, we might think of particular wealthy public figures, and we might think, well, yeah, no kidding, because the kingdom of God is about justice and care for the poor, and how is a wealthy person going to be a part of that picture? But the disciples have been taught that wealth is a sign of God's favor. So when they hear Jesus say it's difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God, their reaction is more like, wait, you're saying that those who we have understood to be favored by God will have a difficult time entering God's kingdom? How does that make sense? And so they ask, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. With God all things are possible. This is hard stuff. Difficult enough that the man in the scripture went away grieving. It's hard stuff. It can provoke grief, but I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think every one of you has grieved. And guess what? You survived it. We don't actually know what the man in this story did. 
we often assume that because he goes away grieving, he's not able to take that step that Jesus asks of him. But scripture doesn't say what happened. So maybe he did say yes to following Jesus in the way Jesus asked. And maybe this grief is the healthy and fitting human response to taking a good hard look at oneself and realizing you have to change something. What we do know is that Jesus loved him. Before he ever told him what to do to follow, Jesus looked at him and loved him. However challenging the call to follow Jesus is, we know that God's love paves the way and that God makes possible what would be impossible if we were in it on our own. We're not on our own. I don't know what's next on my faith journey or on yours, but I do know that I want my faith journey to be one where I turn to Jesus and say, okay, here's what I've done. I followed these commandments, but what's next? We can do this if we feel the security that comes from God's love for us. If we have the faith that God makes possible what seems too difficult for us. And I think we can do this better when we do it together, when we do it in Christian community. So may we all be willing to turn to God and ask what's next. And may we be a Christian community that supports one another in this challenging and love-filled journey. Amen.